So if you look at the market cap of Tether, there's about $62 billion of Tether. Well, almost half of that, it moves every single day. And if you look at USD coin, there's $26 billion of USD coin. Only $1 billion of USD coin moves every day. And then if you compare that to Binance coin, which only has $10 million, $2 billion of Binance coin moves every day. So Binance coin has four times the velocity of USD coin because it has half the market cap and twice the 24 hour volume. So people, like, you know, the market is using Tether and Binance USD. I mean, they are using USD coin, but as, as far as the availability of the coin to the crypto markets, uh, it is not nearly as popular as it, as its market cap is suggesting. In another part of the world. Welcome to another episode of the Foot Guns Podcast. I'm Boomer, a global macro discretionary trader representing the institutional side of things. We've got Hal 69K, an astrophysicist turned quant trader, turned crypto villain prop trader, joining us from his location undisclosed in the Caribbean. We've also got our good friend Vili at the helm representing retail and Gen Z. Guys, I got to tell you, it's some bad news, but I'm losing the billionaire space race on two counts. Number one, I'm not a billionaire. Number two, I've yet to go to space, but I have some questions. With Richard Branson supposedly entering space today, here's what I need to know from you, Hal 69K. Did he actually go to outer space? Is 50,000 feet off the ground considered outer space? Um, so I'll give you the physics answer, which is yes and no, because there is no defined point at which space starts. <laughs> <laughs> what about the space you between your these ears? Guys, these guys are having, they're spending a gazillion dollars and drawing all this attention to themselves to get to an undefined location. I'll tell you this. I bet you before this is over, somebody somebody makes the definition. Yeah, yeah. Because I just I looked at that and I thought fifty thousand feet. I think we fly spot spy planes at that, and we have low uh, geosynchronous um, satellites in orbit that are that are pretty much that low. I mean, I got to tell you, like I would give up all that I have uh, made in the past financially and in the future to orbit the Earth for twenty four hours. That would be amazing um but you know the fact that you went 50k above the earth's surface i'm not really sure you went to space and i guess how you just confirmed that also when landing richard branson said <laughs> he said we just need to build as many of these spaceships as we can so children can go up there <laughs> what for the children for the do it for the children spend all this money we, and, and yeah I know I was I I was like I mean that's the thought that crossed my mind because I, I I watched the the videos of the flight or whatever and they're floating around and I was just like mm, is this useful? Yeah, and so you know I'm not sure how many children globally 
can can spend uh, $250,000 on a ticket to go to outer space when they're at outer space is not actually a thing. Also, in terms of weightlessness, if they achieve weightlessness during the filming of Apollo 13, uh, they took an old uh, DC-10, hollowed out DC-10, and did these nose dives over and over and over so that the actors like Tom Hanks could appear like that they were uh, weightless. They achieved a, a state of weightlessness while never having left the Earth's atmosphere. So the argument to go up there because it's weightless, um, you can do that on DC-10. Uh, where space is not defined, and definitely we we you know we don't need children on these spacecraft. And I'll just say that anytime I ever hear about do it for the children, unless it's about St. Jude's Children's Hospital, right, the thing that cures cancer for kids, uh, when people talk about let's do it for the children, they're almost always operating from a place of bad faith. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I've. Of course, there's nothing wrong with like trying to progress technology and, you know, explore space and whatever. But uh, yeah, to say that you're uh, you know, solving solving some issue with, you know, child world hunger or something by getting us into space, then no. Or even like just we need this for our children. No, that no, our children need food and shelter. Twenty two thousand children died today because of lack of nutrition, malnutrition or starvation. I think Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, they all just want an excuse to be able to drink their own piss without judgment. That's what space really means to me. <laughs> Floating around the earth in a giant bio cubicle where you're just recycling your urine. Yeah, but well, I could, I to, let me take the other side of that trade. I think you, 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 could, you could achieve the same result if you're just looking to drink your own pee. And without judgment. Public, like a cool without, way to without, drink Yeah, no, pee. you're public. To public fanfare and public accord, you could also get lost at sea. <laughs> a lot cheaper, a lot cheaper, and uh, you know you could take all the money you're spending on your stupid fake space flights and actually prevent some of the twenty-two thousand children who died today because of starvation. But people have been getting lost at sea for years. I mean, this is like a new way to drink your own piss, coolly. Well, so since my favorite thing is crypto i'll give you guys something that you can do in space with crypto which is you can transfer bitcoin the uh actually it was in uh august 18th 2020 that is reported that um on the international space station uh there was some hardware that authorized a 0.0099 bitcoin transfer and by the way i let me let's just take this moment to to let everyone know that if you didn't know this already you can buy less than one Bitcoin. You can buy a Bitcoin divided out to like the 10th decimal plate. You can buy 0.00001 Bitcoin. Uh, just letting you know, it's one of the unique properties of Bitcoin. Who put on a Bitcoin transfer in space transaction? Like, was that like a crypto.com sponsor? Looks like it was initiated by Chief Technology Officer Jeff Garzik on June I got to follow the money on June that one. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, <laughs> that sounds like some kind of weird hype beast material. Oh, yeah. Hype beast material. Do you, you said crypto.com. How, how do you know that name? Well, you guys, you guys were watching the fight last night, round three, McGregor, Poirier. You guys even UFC. Do you guys follow the UFC? 
Uh, I'm not poor enough to follow professional wrestling or anything that's press professional wrestling adjacent. Uh, well, yeah, I, I just spend my time uh, looking at cryptocurrency. Okay, well, if you uh, if you were interested in the in the finale round three of the of the battle between McGregor and Poirier, you would have watched the fight last night. Spoiler alert: McGregor broke his leg in the first round, and uh, it was like decision by doctor decision, I guess. But I was amazed to see that Crypto dot com was the like leading spon- one of the leading sponsors of the event. It was on every athlete's jersey. They walked into the octagon, uh, and I'm not ex- exactly sure what Crypto.com even does, but apparently they had enough money to make a $175 million 10-year sponsorship with the UFC. Which makes sense because they raised exactly $200 million in a single uh, offering that remains opaque as to who, who the fund funding it is. Crypto.com, just on the uh, regulatory stuff, pal before you explain what it does or doesn't do on the regulatory side of things uh it is a hong kong based company that is domiciled in the nation of malta yeah i I mean i i would say the simplest explanation of what crypto.com does is it's a coinbase competitor it um you know tries to bring crypto trading and buying and selling and transferring um to the user in an easy to use application on their phone. I think they m- might have a desktop application. Um, but yeah, the the thing that stands them apart from Coinbase is there's this thing called crypto.com coin. There you know, there is no Coinbase coin. Yeah, that that they would obviously have to come up with a better name for it. But crypto.com didn't care. They're just like crypto.com coin. It's <laughs> like the worst name ever. And and it's actually um, growing in market cap to the point that it is now, what is it? Top 33. So it's, you know, it's in the top 50 cryptocurrencies now with a $3 billion market cap. Can, can you trend? Can you trend its growth? Did you see any spike between 11 o'clock? Eastern, or I guess it would have been earlier than that, like yesterday afternoon and today. Oh yeah, there was a huge spike in the over the last twenty four hours. The the it went up like eight percent or something like that. Um, so the UFC sponsorship actually worked incredible. Actually, I mean, it worked. It worked well, to get some it, interest that, in the coin. It 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 may have generated interest in the coin. The thing that financial assets cannot do is speak. They cannot tell you that the reason that they rallied was for X or Y. It could have been purely coincidental. Yeah, yeah that is it, absolutely true. But it can't speak, but we can. So I don't know. I'm, I'm saying well, causation, I mean, causation correlation. Just, yeah, there's a lot of causation without correlation. People want to find meaning everywhere. That's one of the themes we come back to over and over on this podcast is the desire of human beings to explain everything, to rationalize everything. And sometimes things just happen. And the fact that it was a you know, sponsored event. I will say that UFC um, doesn't have near the market penetration. I mean, it's a relatively small sport, uh, given that you have to you know, go pay-per-view it. Um, whereas cricket is the second most popular sport in the world with the viewership and followership of 2.5 billion people. 
and Bitfinex uh, has inked a deal with the Cricket League in Sri Lanka to uh, have its name displayed on the the, the jerseys of uh, all of its players. So now that we've established what Crypto.com is and it's, it's an exchange, what's the risk there? What's the foot gun? Oh, I mean... I, I think it, the the biggest thing is the coin itself. I think um, there's nothing wrong with with going to crypto.com and using it as as like your your way that you're buying like Bitcoin. Um, I think if you want to be a trader, then no, you have no reason to be there. But if I if you want to just like go in and buy some Bitcoin every once in a while, you know, it's an option for you. Um, you could go and compare to see you know what the fees are there compared to Coinbase, and maybe it's a better option for you. I think buying the coin itself um, with like the lot, you know, with, with the thought of like, oh, I'm a I'm an investor that's going to come in and buy crypto.com coin because if crypto.com does well, this coin will go up. Um, yeah, that'll probably work until it doesn't. Uh, that's just that's just what I think. Um, I don't I, I don't think the coin itself like has any reason to be a coin. Um, and at some point there's going to be a regulatory risk around the coin. Um, if it's just a stock, like if it's clearly just behaving like a stock, um, it's, there's a, there's a big regulatory risk there. Well, given it's supposed to be a stable coin, right? I mean, is that, is that the idea behind it? No, no. Floating stable coin. Listen, I think, I think, I think the big foot gun here is that, all of the scams and the major losses we've seen surrounding cryptocurrencies have involved exit scams. And that means physical custodianship, i.e. an exchange that is not real, where people deposit their Bitcoin and people run off with it. And right, right. Um, so I just call me crazy, but, you know. Crypto.com, they got the domain, they got the web domain. It's almost sort of like a cyber squatting issue, right? And uh, they got the domain name, but I'm going to go with a more established exchange to trade my crypto than something that uh, is in Hong Kong, has raised one single round of $200 million, which they seem to have plowed entirely back into UFC fighting sponsorship. And it's domi- and, and you're subjecting yourself to being... Uh, uh, um, a part of the party to the laws of Malta, which is famous for sort of Russian oligarch money lender, money laundering and malfeasance. Right, and there's also, I mean, uh, the there's also the point that like, what is your what is your exposure, right? I mean, if you're if you're gonna put a hundred bucks into crypto, uh, yeah, I I mean, are you worried about like an what you know what you're talking about is like I I would describe as an exchange risk, which is the, or custodial risk, right? Where that the exchange you're using is actually with crypto, they're custodying your coins for you, um, and so there is this risk that not not in a malicious way, but like maybe someone hacks the exchange, or even like someone just makes a mistake, and all of a sudden the Bitcoin is inaccessible. Um, that is going to be detrimental to the price of the Crypto.com coin. And it's going to be detrimental to uh, the reputation and the you know actual users will lose their money. So I am a retail crypto investor who has never taken ownership of a cryptocurrency in that uh, 
like when I use Coinbase or something like that, right? They they have it in a wallet for me. When you're trading House 69K, do, do you take possession of currencies or? Yes, I have possession of all of my crypto uh, 100% of the time and all of my trading. There's never a moment that I don't have possession of it. Do you see that as like a benefit for you? Like, why would you not use, besides the fees, why would you not use one of these trading platforms where they wallet it? Oh, I mean, personal, like my personal reason is just because I'm generating alpha, you know, and and for those of you who don't know what that means is that like I'm con- consistently beating the market um, there, you know, it, and I, I don't know if if you're someone that has... 500 bucks uh that you want to invest in crypto then just go buy you know uh whatever token that you're interested in like you know bitcoin or ethereum or whatnot um but don't go and start getting involved in this DeFi space if you have ten thousand dollars that you want to go um mess around with then yeah like come and see what this is like because uh it's rewarding if you if you go to use sushi swap and you learn it um not only do you end up getting like some financial benefits because sometimes you in, you invest in some token where they're literally handing out money because they want people to be involved in this space they're, they're, it, it's kind of like uh to me i i see it as um like you're a game tester uh they they or a software tester like they need people to come in and try these things and there's a risk right there's uh, we, we saw it the other day or we saw it actually recently with a couple of tokens where literally everyone lost all of their money um, because the, the people are programming smart contracts, right? So there's a there's just a huge, huge risk here, but there's also a big reward, right? So yeah, I'm involved in it because I understand what I'm doing um, and I, I'm following the space very closely. I, you know, from the retail side, it is... It, you know, it's it, it's a, a it's kind of like buying a call option on on GME after it already went up 200 percent. Hmm. So are smart contracts or are, is that increased risk for you? See so smart, risk? Yeah. So a smart contract is someone that went and wrote code on top of the Ethereum network. And the thing about a smart contract is once it's written, you know, uh, maybe it's written in such a way where a group of people have control over it. Um, but if there's a bug in it, a hack, an exploit, and somebody figures it out before everybody else does, um, they're going to drain all the money out of the smart contract before anyone realizes what happened. Okay, so it's more susceptible to hackers and stuff like right. that. Right, and it's kind of the same risk that we're talking about with Crypto.com or Coinbase, which is if somebody gets a hold of the Bitcoin that Coinbase has in their, um, you know, in their in their Bitcoin wallets, uh, that money is going to be gone faster than Coinbase knows what happened. And in you know in the crypto world, there is no going back. You know the the only the only thing you can do at that point is track down the person who stole it and you know force them to give the money back. Which there is a precedent in crypto with um, Mount Gox, which was hacked, um, and uh, you know it was re- it was responsible for at the time there were no um, you know Bitcoin exchanges besides Mount Gox, and so when it was hacked, I mean it was detrimental. People thought Bitcoin was just done. I mean you know so many people lost so much money. 
but they eventually found the people who stole the money and they you know returned the funds to the investors so there is a precedent that if you lose your money they're going to go and find the guy and get it back to you right so you made you made it very clear that there is no 51% attack risk on some of the more established uh, cryptos like Bitcoin. It just doesn't make sense for someone to go after it like that anymore. But for all of these new smart contracts that are adding on to, how you said, the Ethereum blockchain, did they are they still at risk? Well, you're, you're conflating two ideas because... Um... So a 51% attack is an attack you do on a proof-of-work network. So currently, Bitcoin and Ethereum are the two largest proof-of-work ne- networks. And they are both large enough that a 51% attack would be um, you know, not economical for the attacker. They, they might as well just uh, install Bitcoin miners or Ethereum miners. Um, so smart contracts that I'm talking about are not the ones that don't exist inside of the a uh, Cardano network that has been promised that literally has no smart contracts. It's been around for years. And the reason I'm saying that is Cardano is this like huge crypto by market cap right now. So Ethereum acts, actually has functioning smart contracts. So these smart contracts don't have a risk of the network that they're running on being attacked. The only risk that they have is an exploit within the contract itself. It, it You know, it'd be like... Um, It'd be like if you opened up a store uh, next to another store that sold the same product and you were an idiot and you had no idea that you were selling the product cheaper than the person next door. And someone came in and, you know, arbitraged that trade. And, um, you know, in the smart contract world, everything happens instantly, right? So they would be able to just clear out your supply from you and take all your money. Um, so it's not necessarily like that there's um, that there's there's going to be something that fails in the network. It's that that they literally are like, oh, we're going to create a financial product. Um, and there's a there's some logic in that financial product that they didn't think about that someone can come in and exploit. Gotcha. So can we take this back to crypto.com? Is it is it safe to say as a group that at least that do can we? reach a consensus it's my view that crypto.com represents custodial risk it should be avoided it has some some pretty big red flags one being as a mysterious source of funding of 200 million dollars which it seems to have spent entirely on a sponsorship for a pro wrestling upgraded product and that there's just no reason to be trading on crypto.com. There's no reason I can think of. Can anyone think of a reason that the risk of... Yeah, I mean, the only reason I can think of is if you live in a place where there's not a better option. Right. So for those living in the United States, as bad as the Coinbase fees may be, stick with Coinbase. For those living in Canada, as bad as the Binance fees may be, stick with Binance. I think it's time, I guess what I'm trying to do is uh, just put this guy to bed and say, there's just no reason for crypto.com done. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. I mean, and I I, I do, you know, I will say again that it's like, if you're putting a hundred bucks into it, don't think too hard into it. I mean, you know, the, 
the risks that we're talking about are not the risks that like if you're, if you're putting, you know, if you're putting your last hundred dollars into it, you're doing the wrong thing. Don't, you know, don't invest that money. Go out and buy some food or whatever. Um, but yeah, if you have a hundred bucks laying around, it's not going to matter. The only thing that matters is that if Bitcoin starts going up and actually goes up in the way that everyone thinks it's going to go up, it like, like really, really goes up, you know, to like a hundred thousand dollars a coin or something then you probably wish you had put your money in Coinbase instead of crypto.com because you got to get your money back out, right? And that's when it that's when it becomes a pain when when you actually start making a lot of money off of a very small initial investment. Um, and then you run into, you know, they're like, oh, actually, it's going to take us 25 days to send this money to your bank account because we're in Malta. If yeah. if they return your emails, if yeah, if they ever return your email, yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the podcasts we recommend on the newsletter is a, a great podcast called Exit Scam, and it's about this uh, fellow who ran a, a fraudulent Bitcoin exchange, and in doing so, he uh, basically offloaded. He created a bunch of fake accounts that were really him. He was taking custodian. He was a, a, a taking ownership of these folks in the form of a cold storage wallet and then taking other people's Bitcoin and then making insanely levered trades with it and losing it all. And it's sort of suspicious as to whether he might have faked his own death in India, which is what the podcast explores. So crypto.com is dead to me. Moving on, Hal 69K, I'm liking the price action on Bitcoin. Uh, you know, it's Sunday. It didn't automatically go down with the open of the futures. Um, I made a tidy profit by holding over the weekend in the futures contracts. Um, what do you? What do you? What are you thinking? Am I getting too excited? Uh, is it gonna? Uh, are you thinking it's going to uh, um, lose at thirty-five k again? Um, I think lose at thirty-five k sounds reasonable. <laughs> um, yeah, we could see uh, we could see a, another range happen. That uh, it's it's going to be a, a really tight range if it forms, I think, and it, it'd be between thirty five k and um, thirty three point five k, um, and that's just going on what you and I have been observing recently, which is um, you know Bitcoin is literally breaking out right now. And it has also been crapping out as as hard as it's been breaking out. So, um, you know, my my gut feeling is that we're going to hit 35K and we're going to we're going to crap out and get another retest of 33.5. You know, from a technical level, that should not happen. and, And we should maybe have a stall at 35 and then just like start going back up from there. So. Billy, um, one of the trends that I've noticed among um, retail folks in crypto uh, is that there is a sort of, uh, a lot of retail investors don't seem to be that into the idea of trading Bitcoin. It feels like to me a lot of retail investors want to treat crypto like a lottery ticket. They want to, that's why there's always this constant search for sort of low-grade internet forums and rumors and whatever um, for, quote-unquote, the next something. As I mentioned on another podcast, my computer in to get repaired. This guy was hyping up Helium, which involved some physical blockchain. It was supposed to be, quote-unquote, 
the next Litecoin. Well, Litecoin's doing just fine. You can go buy Litecoin. You don't need another version of Litecoin. What what is it that it is it is it that people in the retail space have already said these are yellow bucks? I'm buying lottery tickets, so I'm going to go search for something that could be the next Bitcoin. Bitcoin's already done what it's going to do. I can't really make any money in it. I need to go find something where I can get more bang for my buck. I mean, how does walk me through that, how how that works in your head? I mean, I just kind of view it as a different trading range than what you and how 69k are probably thinking so how 69k just described you know between 33 and a half and 35 and he's probably going to be making multiple trades within that range trying to catch it as it wobbles where i'm saying i don't i'm not paying attention to any of that within two to three years if it is at 50 or 60 then that's how i win yeah, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've never bought Bitcoin. I have, I have recently bought a little Bitcoin as it as it dipped down into like the the thirty range. But yeah, for the okay. most part, you're right. It's it's other other altcoins, right? And is it the hope that um, is it sort of like I mean, there's just this tendency to uh, just look at something and say, oh, that looks expensive relative to. I mean, it's really not. Bitcoin is not more expensive relative to, say, Dogecoin, which serves no purpose, has no function, has no future. But somebody looks at something trading at 30000 something looks at something trading at $0.20, cents, they see more potential upside than the one that's trading at $0.20. Cents. That's the whole penny stock mentality. That's the whole lottery ticket mentality. That's the whole these are yellow bucks anyway mentality. And well, I'm just, I guess I'm curious, and I think what Hal was driving at earlier is that I'm not even sure a lot of retail traders are where you can buy Bitcoin. They, <laughs> you don't need thirty current at current price thirty four thousand four hundred and fifty dollars to to trade into Bitcoin. You can it's, it's divisible. You can buy smaller lots of Bitcoin. Right. So I mean, uh, you can correct me where I'm wrong here, but from like a nor- for normal stocks, I kind of view you know the PE ratio, price per earnings. Obviously, growth stocks have much higher P ratios. And how 69K has before pointed out several crypto tokens that have seemingly very low price per earning ratios and that they have a lot of revenue coming in and kind of cheap prices right now. Is that, am I wrong in saying that? Some of these like sushi swap and some of the exchanges. No, you're not wrong, but you are now maybe becoming informed because of the things we've been telling you. Right. So I'm learning through that. So I'm just saying it's it doesn't seem like a lottery ticket where I say, hey, if I buy three of these altcoins that have, you know, potentially large upside are actually generating revenue as a business. And my current thesis on some of those is if two of them go up 100% and one of them just fails, gets hacked or whatever, then I've made money. Yeah, and I, I think you also stumbled into something. Uh, and I think that's right. And that's why we're the only value investing focused cryptocurrency newsletter on the planet. Everyone else is sort of hyping or hoping or or shitcoining or buying lottery tickets or whatever. And we're, we're, we're looking at the actual use case for these things and saying, 
what's cheap and trying to establish something that looks a little bit like a peak price per earnings. Um, and I think Sushi is insanely cheap at trading at one times revenue. That's another way to value a company that's uh, in the earliest days of adoption that's not profitable. I mean, tr- Tesla's never turned a profit. You can't value it on this PE ratio. You have to evaluate re- it another way. Um, you have to look at its price per revenue. Um, so I, I will say, though, that you talked about growth stocks. And um, I have a Series 3, which enables me to talk uh, to anyone I want to and say anything I want to about currencies, commodities, um, futures, stock index futures. I do not have a Series 7. I do not trade in individual stocks. I am got a private equity background. And if I can't fire the CEO, I don't want to own it. But, um, you know, value stocks and growth stocks, growth stocks are trading an extraordinarily high multiple if they're even earning any profit, right? That doesn't mean that's going to continue. I mean, these are the guys that usually first get whacked in an out of, out of control market. And Value stocks, the Russell 2000, for example, small cap stocks uh, have been wildly underperforming for almost, you know, the better part of a decade relative to the FANG sort of high flying growth stocks. But that will not always be true. Um, That certainly has not been true the majority of the time that stocks have existed. And so uh, I just want to caution you, I guess, against if I can legally, I don't know, somebody, you know, please email us if I'm violating securities laws. But I want to caution you against thinking about that it's normal for something like Tesla to have a 600, however big a market cap it does. It's not normal for a company that doesn't earn any money or have any prospect of ever earning money in the future for it to be trading at such a high valuation. That is abnormal in the history of stock, the stock market. Yeah, I think I think that's good advice. Going back to Boomer, something you were talking about earlier with Exit Scam, you uh, you put me onto that podcast and I started listening to the first couple of episodes and it went into how the uh, owner of Quadriga, who was involved in you know the same you know, potential exit scam, was heavily involved with Bit gold prior to that is bit gold did that no, prelude bitcoin was, in any way no it was actually no, not called yeah. big big gold it was called uh, uh republic gold or something it was one of these weird um non you know sort of regulatory approved financial instruments that was a creature of the early internet and of those sort of you know late night tv commercials where they hype um, rare silver dollars type thing. I think it, it wasn't called BitGold. Uh, I may be wrong. Are you 100% sure it's called BitGold? Unless you're talking about, because there was a there was a BitGold, I think that's what it was called, which was like um, an e-currency in the, the early days of the internet. Yeah, okay, I might have been wrong there, but BitGold does seem to be a thing. I mean, the essence of my question was just a little history lesson for me on uh you know you've gone over the creation of bitcoin before but what kind of blockchain currencies preluded bitcoin or if there were any or what the gold was because it it seems it looked like on google at least that was what preluded yeah yeah no i mean it was um it was an early 
you know, uh, I was, it's like 1998 or something like that. Um, it was like an yeah, early, early, early internet an early, yeah. Early internet attempt at a cryptocurrency. Um, but I, you know, I, it didn't, um, quite solve the Byzantine generals problem, which, uh, Bitcoin solved. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it was, it was one of those, like, I mean, that's the thing about Bitcoin. Everybody thinks like Bitcoin was just like, it came out of thin air at a race. No, it's a, it's a technology that was being developed for like a very, very long time and finally reached the stage that it was working. Yeah. It goes back to 1974. So Hal, so you wanted to talk a little bit about coin and, or, uh, sorry, not coin circle. Um, Let's talk about Circle. Will, uh, sorry, Billy, do you know what uh, uh, Circle is? Did you did you follow that four point five billion dollars back? Uh, yeah, I saw it, you know, briefly, and then discussed in the uh, Exec Sum podcast that we're also hosting, but not beyond what uh, how sixty nine K's comments were in that sh- short introduction. So, how let's let's let's, let's delve deeper. Sure, sure. Shall, shall I start, or did you have? Comments? Oh yeah. Well, no, I yeah. I mean, uh, the the thing that I'm curious is, like, Billy, do you have any interest in this stock? Uh, you know, they're they're gonna have a public listing. Uh, are you gonna buy it? <laughs> I I uh, despite your guys's warnings, I was one of the people who lost like twenty five percent on Coinbase's IPO. So I'm gonna sit this one out probably unless you give me a good reason not to (laughs) yeah i mean uh, you know uh and i you know buying straight into the ipo is always risky um you know over uh, even a midterm time you know coinbase could end up doing well or something like that um so yeah uh, buying into any ipo is really really risky because the price is going to get argued over um but yeah, I I I think that circle is really really interesting. It's um it's growing its market cap insanely fast. Um, the only skeptical thing that I have is that they are projecting um, that they're going to continue to grow at this like you know exponential rate. Um, I do think that they're not considering the competition that's out there in the cryptocurrency market. Um, or they're just, you know, obviously they're pitching to investors, um, how they think they're going to grow because they want people to invest. So I think they're just being a little bit overzealous in their future. I got to point to a foot gun regarding, um, uh, uh, the guy, um, who's the CEO of circle. Now remember the SPAC is an association of Jeremy Allaire and um, and uh, Bob Diamond, who is the former uh, chairman of Barclays Bank, which was Lehman Brothers repackaged. So there's a UT, I'm sorry, FT journalist that you should follow his Twitter always named Philip Stafford. And he's the only person that I know who's like does deep dives on back office and custodian custodian issues surrounding things like cryptocurrency. And so Jeremy Allaire goes on this, you know, eight part tweet about how they're increasing the transparency of uh, what's in the report 
on um, reserve account report as of February 28th. Uh, he retweets a guy who's responding to the CEO of Circle. And he talks about how you know, they, they posted their reserve account report on February 28th, 2021, and talked about the USD held in total supply, less USDC tokens, tokens allowed but not issued, less USDC, USDC tokens blacklisted equals USDC tokens outstanding, um, US dollars held in custody accounts, $9.3 billion. Did the same thing in, in April 30th. Um, and uh, did the uh, uh, USD coin supply less, less, less equals blocked uh, uh, tokens outstanding? And they haven't provided that level of transparency since. So um, it's a kind of it's it's not a red flag. It's not can't it's not an exit scam type thing. But it was not very comforting to hear that the guy lending. So the way SPACs work is you get a high profile guy like a Bob Diamond who is the head of a major investment bank, and they people allocate capital for him to go find a company. You don't know what the company is that he was going to buy yet. In fact, he's legally prohibited from talking to any potential target acquisitions, which I think is one of the weirdest things about SPACs. So the thing that just disturbed me about this whole thing was watching him being interviewed on Bloomberg. And when Bob Diamond says, blockchain is a new technology, okay, I mean, I have never even run an investment bank, and I know that blockchain is from 1974. I don't know whether he doesn't know that that's not true, or he's just trying to simplify it. Maybe he's just trying to sort of simplify yeah, I do, it. I do think there is, a, there is a chance that he's trying to simplify it. There, there, may, there may be, but I, but I kind of feel like that if I was going to go on there in good faith, I would say something like, block. this is the way I would pitch it. Blockchain is actually, I would want to make investors feel, one, comfortable, right? That's step one. Anytime you're pitching something, you want someone to say yes to something. The way you do it is you make them feel comfortable that, you know, this is sort of on the level. So I would say blockchain is an established technology. People may not know this. Maybe there's an opportunity for education. Blockchain is established uh, technology that goes all the way back to 1974. It's been proven. And the difference between Circle, which is a fintech company, and sort of pitch it that way, is that it's, it's, you know, this is nothing new, but Circle is taking a different approach by doing X, Y, and Z, right? So that would have been the appropriate way to talk about that. Right. It would have been furthermore appropriate for the Circle person not to do an eight-tweet-long thread talking about transparency when they've stopped listing the uh, collateral that makes up USDC. So don't think it's an exit scam. I just, I just think that, uh, you know, uh, actually statistically two thirds of recent IPOs after one year outperform the market. So IPOs are traditionally, good places to put your money just across the board. And that's a study that goes back, I believe, you know, sort of 20 years. SPACs, however, um, have a more dotted history. And certainly this level of SPAC adoption is something we've never seen. So I, 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 
whether or not you choose to buy Circle is up to you. But I would have at least liked a guy to take enough time out of his day to acknowledge that, bl- that blockchain is not new. Because that's just not true. I don't. I don't. It's just a, a buzzword, way. though. I mean, he's just. If you're judging no. a, a SPAC or any company that's about to go open onto an IPO by using buzzwords, new, innovative. I mean, that's his little. Okay, this is so different. let's let, let, let's take that to a different place. All right, so let's say that uh, a, a biotech company uh, goes on there, and what penicillin is not that much older than the blockchain or the polio vaccine. The polio vaccine is only 20 years older than the blockchain. And so he goes on there and says, we have uh, uh, the, 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 the polio vaccine is a new technology. Would you buy that biotech stock? Yeah, no, I think I think a better parallel was saying something like the Pfizer no, 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 is a new technology because it's a different application of vaccine. No, I'm not going to play your game. No, no, you have to take the trade. So you would buy, you would potentially, that would not be an automatic disqualifier if someone said the polio vaccine was new. That that would be worrisome for me, yeah. Okay, so that's what Bob Diamond did. Or is it a different application of no, no, old no, tech? No. I can, I can, we can go back and we can, we can grab a piece of the interview and reinsert it in the podcast. But I want you to hear Bob Diamond in his Bloomberg interview. I'm sure it's available on YouTube. Talk about how the blockchain is completely new because it's not an oversimplification. And I shouldn't have even opened the door for that earlier. Yeah, you th- could go by circle. You could be. You can believe in, in in that kind of thing. I'm just the way to lose 25 percent on an IPO again. Itching. It's not an IPO. SPAC is not an IPO. It's already been IPO'd. Okay, this is the way SPACs work. So they're already listed. They are already listed companies that get a bunch of shareholders. They have two years to move it or lose it. They pay the Bob Diamond, his original investors, usually staked by hedge funds. They pay the ongoing costs of merging a company. But they can go out and buy any company they want. And, he, and here again, the SEC prohibits them from talking to targets before they go public as a SPAC. So by buying that SPAC, you're betting that Bob Diamond is an intelligent guy who's going to go find a good company to go buy at a good price, right? So step one for me is that Bob Diamond understands what he's buying. That's step one. Now, the layer two of that is the CEO of Circle. Now, he's a little bit different. Bob Diamond's going to be chairman of the board and he's running this back. The guy's going to be running circle may be a little bit better, but you've got a financial journal times journalist who's retreating a third party, which they almost never did. You know, I mean, people on the FT do not, do not trade random. I mean, do not retweet random people's responses to public CEOs, right? Pointing out that they are not in fact being sort of as transparent as this eight Twitter ramble sort of describes. All, all I'm trying to do is point out and, and our value in this in this world is to point out the foot guns. I see that as being a foot gun. I might it's just sort of sit this one out. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a different data point uh, that I think is a foot gun, which uh, 
I pointed out in our big read that we put out on Saturday. Um, if you look at the 24 hour volume on USD coin compared to Tether compared to Binance USD, I, 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 I'm guessing you didn't think I was going to say Binance USD. So the third, the third largest stable coin in the world right now is Binance USD. Yep. Number um, 13 or 14, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm just looking at um, just the stable coins. Oh, yeah. Um, right. So if you look at the market cap of Tether, there's about $62 billion of Tether. Well, almost half of that, it moves every single day. And if you look at USD coin, there's $26 billion of USD coin. Only $1 billion of USD coin moves every day. And then if you compare that to Binance coin, which only has $10 million, $2 billion of Binance coin moves every day. So Binance coin has twice the velocity, I mean, four times the velocity of USD coin because it has half the market cap and twice the 24-hour volume. So people, like you know, the market is using Tether and Binance USD. I mean, they are using USD coin, but as, as far as the availability of the coin to the crypto markets, uh, it is not nearly as popular as it as it market cap is suggesting. Do you think that's like a DeFi thing? Just the fact that it has USD in it? It's like, <laughs> I almost feel no, like I'd no, in fact, in fact, on the D in the DeFi side, Tether is actually a credit risk. So protocols like Aave or Compound, um, uh, like Aave won't even let you borrow against your Tether while they'll allow you to borrow against your USD coin. So this could be a reason why the USD coin is a little bit less, uh, has less velocity and moves less is that um, because, you know, Tether has this credit risk, people are just like unwilling to hold on to it for a long time. And the credit risk I'm talking about is what US, what um, Boomer is saying uh, USD coin is trying to separate itself from, yet has not done uh, a, a good job at, which is, um, you know, Tether has done a really poor job of showing people, uh, you know, investors um, what is actually backing the Tether and where USD coin is saying, oh, well, we're going to separate ourselves from the market by being transparent. Um, and so there, there are actually a lot of stable coins whose market cap is growing at a faster rate um, than USD coin that are much more transparent as to what's backing uh, the token. One of those is the number four um, stable coin right now, which is called Dai, which is um, the funny part, though. It's an unfortunate name. Tell them how it's spelled. Yeah, D A I. It's a very unfortunate name. Uh, it, it it came from the token Sai S A I, and I think there's like an acronym or something there. But yeah, very unfortunate <laughs> name. Um, so yeah, there's actually been, better. <laughs> there's actually been some controversy um, recently because of um, the you know the recent sell off in the crypto markets. Um, Dai was backed by other types of collateral such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, but it was also backed by USD coin. Um, and so as Bitcoin and Ethereum went down in price, the backing on DAI has become um, 
50% or like 44, 45% USD coin. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's this weird, there's this weirdness in the crypto markets that, that I think even well-informed investors aren't paying attention to, you know, where you have a, you have a stable coin called DAI, which is almost 50% backed by a stable, another stable coin. So, you know, there's, there's a sort of connectedness that's growing in the markets. Um, you know, do, do people that are investing in circle realize that, um, two you know, 2% or sorry, um, uh, almost 10% of USD coin is used to back this other stable coin, uh, called die. No, I don't think they do. And, and they don't talk about anywhere in the, um, uh, investment, you know, the investors, um, pitch perspective. So just, just to, just to summarize that for, uh, not as informed investors like myself, you're saying that there are lots of stable coins out there and they can all hypothetically do the same thing for you, i.e. you can transfer into them without tons of withdrawal fees and you know they're probably not going to move around a bunch, but some of them, like Tether, are not being as transparent and that's potentially worrying, worrying some for you. Yeah, yeah, actually, and um, there, there, it's not just worrisome for me. There's been moments in the markets when the Bitcoin, well, okay, so what happened? I think it was like 2018. Um, there was, you know, there was worries that Tether was actually not backed by a um, dollar for every Tether, and so people just started selling their Tether into Bitcoin, and the Tether price dropped to 88 cents on the dollar. Which is below the, the dollar that you would expect. Yeah, I mean, imagine if your bank if you went and you <laughs> opened your bank account, Billy, and it was and a twelve percent of you the funds you had were gone, you know, or or the perceived funds you had were gone. Yeah, that's not that's not what you want to happen from a stable coin. Exactly. Yeah, and and having Circle be backed by ten percent USD. What is the importance there? Uh, no, I was talking about another stable coin called DAI, D-A-I, okay. right. that is, uh, at, you know, 45% backed by USD coin. So, um, my point is that, you know, there's this, there's this sort of connectedness and stickiness in the, uh, the cryptocurrency markets where, you know, Circle is like promising that it's a stable coin, but then there's these other stable coins that are, doing the exact same job and even more transparent um, than USD coin. And they are, you know, like what DAI is, is a basket of other coins, right? So basically any any stable coin that proves itself useful um, can become part of DAI. And so DAI will grow with it. Another foot gun for um, USDC, if you want to invest in the Circle uh, SPAC, um is that uh what is the biggest uh uh potential market challenger to USDC uh the biggest market challenge i would say is to find more people to come in and actually put their dollars i'm sorry competitor competitor oh they're competitor, competitor. oh um, what's the largest potential competitor you could imagine uh, the Federal Reserve. Exactly. Issuing a U.S. digital dollar that's secure, which is something that they are actively working on. 
um, that they're not, you know, pumping for a six month release, but somebody's at least something working on it. You know, China's talked about doing mirrors and all this sort of kind of stuff. When asked, the CEO said, because I think I, no matter what everybody says, crypto hypers and the lot, no matter what they say, I believe that if the Federal Reserve put a, a digitized version of the U.S. dollar out there, it would be the most popular stablecoin. And so when the CEO was asked on Bloomberg about that potential risk to the downside, he responded, well, look at us. We're talking on Skype. I have no idea what that means. That's a red flag. That's a foot gun. Well, it's just it's just like, look, I mean, the thing is, is that one of this is just a pro, I guess a little pro tip. If you're pitching anyone, you're pitching somebody on something and they bring up a potential killer to your market, just acknowledge it and move on and say, yes, that would present an extreme pressure to our uh, our product. And that's it. That's all you have to say. I mean, the, the, the deal is you're making a bet. If you put U.S. dollars into this SPAC, you are, you are making a bet that is riskier than the U.S. dollars that you currently own. That's the whole idea of equities and stocks. They're speculative. And so, and so you're already there to make that increased risk. So by disclosing that, I mean, you just come off as a sort of down-to-earth CEO as opposed to sort of saying, well, we're on Skype. And nobody thought Skype could exist or something, something weird like that. And by the way, Skype does not work well. It has never made any money. Microsoft paid a gazillion dollars for it. There's never been a substantial upgrade to it. And I'll, whenever I use it, I'm constantly getting drop Skype calls. So that's not even a good, whatever he was going for was just totally lost on me. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not a buyer. I think, yeah. I think we make the entire next episode on the Federal Reserve's potential to make a stable coin. I think there's a lot to unpack there. Okay. Yeah, and um, the you know the other thing I'm going to mention is that um, we're we're you know in our Foot Guns newsletter that we put out, we follow some other you know cryptos that aren't in the top um, five, and one of the ones that we're thinking about adding to that list is called Terra Luna, which is a, um, a decentralized autonomous organization. We've talked about them before. Um, that is building a stable coin and is getting a lot of ground, gaining a lot of ground. Um, and it's a big competition to what Boomer just mentioned, which is like a Federal Reserve um, stable coin. So we, we're going to be talking about that a little bit more in our newsletters. And then uh, we're, we're thinking about adding it to a... Um, to what we're tracking because um, we really like the price action that's going on in, the, in that um, coin. Subscribe to our newsletter at foot.substack.com and tune in next time as we go through a Federal Reserve uh, stablecoin and much, much more. I just bought more Bitcoin, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you <want to> <laughs>